You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, dirty tricks and smear campaigns are not new to politics even in this country. But Frank O'Rourke believes he was the victim of a particularly nasty campaign in the 2020 election. He was elected to the Dáil as a Fianna Fáil TD for the first time in 2016, and many pundits gave him a very good chance of retaining his seat in 2020. In the days before the vote, a social media and leafleting campaign was conducted against him in his Kildare North constituency, in which he was accused of very serious personal misconduct all of it without any foundation. He lost his seat, and when the details of what had occurred came to light, he launched a legal action against social media companies. Eventually, a High Court order was issued against Twitter and Facebook to locate the account holders of various defamatory posts. One Twitter user was identified as a political activist in West Dublin and he admitted that he had dispatched a tweet on the day of the election designed to damage Frank O'Rourke with these allegations of serious personal misconduct. No other individual or entity has been identified as being associated with the damaging material circulated at the time but somebody or some entity had to be behind it. Frank, I suppose, as you'll appreciate, there's been a high turnover of members in the Dáil in the last decade or so. And many people outside Kildare may not have been aware of your political profile. So what did you do before getting into politics and how did you begin your political career? Thanks, Mick. Yes, I suppose I wouldn't have come in under the radar, I suppose, as such I would have, because I wouldn't have come from a family that had a political uh, history or political dynasty. Uh, Before I got involved in politics, I was involved working with Irish Tar and Bitumen Suppliers. They're based down in Dublin Port. I was head of operations for that company and I worked there for 19 years. And I suppose during that time, uh, I always had an interest in politics. I was involved when I was in Sligo RTC in the organisation down there and then obviously involved very much so in the elections in where I came from in Leitrim. My constituency was Sligo Leitrim. And then when I moved to uh, Kildare in 1996, uh, I became involved very quickly with the local commons and local organisation and structure there. I suppose I enjoyed politics and, as I say, had a keen interest in it. Uh, in 2010, uh, the local councillor for the area, which was Councillor Paul Kelly, got appointed to be a judge, and that left a vacancy in the local area uh, for a councillor to be co-opted on by the party and by the organisation. I remember at the time I was in the UK on business with Irish Tar and I got calls when he announced his retirement uh, or that he was stepping down to take up the position of judge. I got a number of calls from members in the organisation saying, well, Frank, we think you should go forward for this. You'd be good because you have an energy and a motivation. You are very good as director of elections and within the common and the court of cancer structure, we think you should go forward and we would support you. So when I got back from the UK, I met with people close to me and met with people in the local organisation and can, I put my name forward and I was co-opted onto the council in 2011. So that's how my, 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 my uh, I suppose, participation 
in public life commenced. And you ran for the Dáil then in 2016? Yeah, well, I ran for the local elections in 2014. Mick, that was my first time to go before the electorate in, 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 in the public. And I topped the poll in 2014 uh, in the local elections, which was a fantastic result. And I suppose that brought me into national uh, prominence to be considered to be a candidate for um, the next general election in 2016. And then, of course, in July 2015, I remember the day well, uh, Fianna Fáil headquarters phoned me and asked, said to me that they'd like to add me to the ticket to run in the contested 2016 election. And of course, the answer that was always going to be yes, because it was a, a great honour to be considered to run for national politics or even local politics and get your name in the ballot paper. So I suppose the campaign started in July 2015 for the February 2016 election and the rest is history. Yeah, you were, you were elected quite comfortably yeah, was, in, yes. in, in 2016 and you begin life in the Dáil. How did you find full-time politics in the Dáil, the whole thing, Frank? Being honest with you, I have no hesitation saying I loved it. I absolutely love politics. And look, I enjoy this. I committed myself to it absolutely. And like all other politicians do, so I'm not pretending to be different, but this is a conversation about me. Thankfully, I had lots of positive outcomes and can point to lots of successes in that. And I suppose that was setting me up nicely for uh, 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 the election coming up in 2020, in 2020 and obviously putting me in a good place uh, to maybe to for challenging to actually hold on and retain my seat. Now, in the run up to the 2020 election, in your personal life, you, you, you had some very tough times. Yeah, I had. I suppose it was a difficult and challenging time uh, for me because uh, like in 2019, in January 2019, which was just a year before the election, although we were expecting the election to be maybe the end of 19, 2020, because the confidence and supply had been extended uh, for a year, of which I didn't agree with, by the way, but that's that's history now. And we can talk about that later if you wish. Uh, I suppose my mother had been very unwell. And I suppose I was trying to balance public life uh, and representing the people with obviously going down to Leitrim on a regular basis to help my two brothers and two sisters care for my mum because we cared for her at home. And then, of course, in January, she died. So that was difficult, very difficult. And because we were, like everybody's close to their mum, but I suppose being the youngest of a family of five, I was particularly close to her. Uh, And then, of course, within a month of that, uh, my marriage had gone in, got into difficulties from probably December 17 or thereabouts and uh, we tried to manage that through uh, to the best of our ability both me and my ex-wife uh, but obviously it comes to a point where that's no longer sustainable so within a month of that I had to leave the family home uh, of my mother dying I'd leave the family home and go and find somewhere to rent and sell which I'd done so I suppose that was you know you lose someone very close in your life in January and then in the February you move out of a family home because of a situation that goes outside of control and that's maybe not repairable within a marriage breakup which is very difficult and of course I have a daughter and that's obviously negatively impacted unfortunately uh, on my relationship with my daughter which I was hugely close to so all in all I suppose if you have to deal with any one of those events in a year it's enough I had to deal with three of them in the space of two months so life was very tough Mick very tough I can well imagine, and I think it's something that not a lot of people will be able to relate to, because unfortunately, because of, of, of the rate of marriage breakdowns, and as you say, that, that, that whole thing, many of us, once you hit middle age, the death of a parent, the whole thing, it, 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 has, it can have a, a major impact. And at the same time, you're in the public eye because of your job as a TD, and you're facing into the prospect of uh, another election. Having said that, as I understand it, in terms of opinion polls in Kildare, 
and of course, opinion polls, there, there's a, a lot of debate about how accurate they are these days. But in general terms, people would have said, observers, I think that you were relatively well placed coming into the election. Well, yeah, yes, and I suppose we, we, you'd never be complacent, and I was never complacent because I worked hard. Remember, for the first month, every single Monday, uh, I'd done six clinics in the six major places in the constituency that started in the morning at, at 10 o'clock, and I finished that night maybe at half nine, ten o'clock. And no more than any other TD done, but I suppose I have to focus on my inputs. And then the first Monday of the month, I would have done 11 locations. Uh, and I suppose it coming out the back of a very difficult, traumatic time personally with the death of my mother, Lord of Mercy, and, her, and also the breakup of my marriage, I suppose uh, I worked nearly 24-7 politically. Uh, so the, the public got good, good good representation from me, not that they weren't getting it beforehand, because that helps you deal with the aftermath of coming out of a very traumatic time in your life. Uh, so I, I, I was known in the constituency, and I think it would be fair to say this, uh, you know, among my own colleagues in the Dáil, but even in the constituency, as being a worker and a, a man to listen to people, give them huge time and to get the job done. On the programme on TV3 that Matt Cooper and uh, Ivan Yates presented, uh, that's when I got the first wind of it, probably in maybe three weeks or four weeks before the election of in 2020, when they used to do a constituency by constituency. I think uh, uh, consistently they had me definitely retaining my seat, and in some of those polls they had me top on the poll. That didn't distract from our campaign. We had, I had an excellent campaign manager, an excellent can- team, and we put a huge amount of energy and resources into the election campaign in 2016, and we would have done that and increased that dramatically in 2020. But the big thing that I found when I was canvassing in 2020, my recognition factor had increased so much because the word was out there where I'd helped so many people, I was available to so many people, I gave people so much time, they were willing to come out to support me. And that came through I suppose, in the vote on the day, although it wasn't enough to get me over the line. Okay, and we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that, the fact in particular that, uh, A, how predictions three, four weeks out were so off and how things changed during the campaign and the ultimate result we'll deal with, all of that, Frank. But at some point in the run-up to that election, you became aware that there was certain misinformation being put out about you. Yeah, and, as, as, and I suppose the, the, the thing about that, I wouldn't be a great believer in opinion polls, just to touch back on that for a minute, because I was interviewed many times at national and local level, and I was asked about opinion polls, if Fianna Fáil would have been struggling at that time. And I always believed that the right opinion poll was on election day, and I did believe that. Nevertheless, I just want to acknowledge that that's where everybody had me in that space. And I wouldn't even criticise that opinion poll, because what we're going to speak about really wasn't filtering through in clinics or on the doors or nothing and really only came up on in the hard shoulder, so to speak, excuse the pun, in the last maybe uh, five days, but in particularly in the last 24 hours before election day that actually uh, caught me unaware. And I suppose the reason it caught me unaware is because there was a huge intensive orchestrated campaign driven to spread vindictive lies, which I have proven to be lies against me. How did it start, Frank? Which damaged, which damaged, obviously, my reputation personally, and people felt they couldn't support me if these things was true. The only time it came apparent to us was in the day before the election, the last day before the election, we were canvassing Selbridge hard, and we had an excellent canvas, and in one of days, it came up on four doors with my team, and it came up on the basis that, uh, oh, we heard about and we've seen on social media uh, the things that's been said about Frank Rourke. Tell him 
Now, that we're very sorry about this. We know it's not true and he'll have our support. So uh, that was only a kind of like a, a, a snapshot. So we figured that night when we finished the canvassing, okay, I don't think this is going to have any effect because that was just a kind of a, a litmus test back as to what people were thinking. But that was the first people that said it to us. No one had actually said to us throughout the campaign, we've seen this on social media, we're not supporting him. So therefore, I didn't get a chance to combat the lie. We had seen the lies on social media in the days before the election. We got that report us and tried to get the different um, uh, social media platform providers to take them down as quickly as possible. But we're, we're, we, the team was quietly aware and managing to see if there's any response on the Door. Remember, we had teams out every night in Nace, Clane, League Slip, Kilcock, and, Minute, can, can, can I just and it stop, wasn't coming up. I just stop you there, Frank. Just on the basis that people, as we said, there was a lie, but just to let people know the specific nature of the lie, and that was encapsulated in a leaflet that you 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 you, you can talk about now and where it was distributed. But I'll just read out the text of that particular leaflet. There's a, a shorter and a longer version. I'll read out the shorter one. Perfect. Local general election candidate Frank O'Rourke is nothing but a fraud, a liar, a bully and a cheat. He has treated his wife and daughter like dirt. He has a love child with one woman and is also having a second affair with another. He left his wife and daughter with no money. She is now struggling to pay bills. He is not the man you think he is. Please consider this before casting your votes. Now, Frank, by any standards, that is scurrilous stuff and... How do you address the, the, the various allegations in it? Okay, and I suppose to give me an opportunity to deal with that, because it's, it's going to be kind of a long-winded response. I suppose the, sh- the first answer I have to say is that that's all absolutely a lie, and that's been proven, which I'll discuss with you in my action that I've took with a very good legal team, Osborne solicitors, uh, with a senior counsel and a barrister, uh, to actually prove that in the High Court, and we got the orders awarded. But the first thing in, in summary is that's all an absolute lie. Factually, all of that it's is completely. Absolutely inaccurate, uh, lies. It's untrue, it's lie, it's toxic, it's rotten, it's unfair, it's everything that that speaks wrong about anybody to do it. I suppose the first wind I got is that maybe uh, I had got, uh, maybe after I'd separated, uh, and basically in the time, in the months after that, I had got maybe some feedback from uh, people close to me that there was a, a story being created if you want a better word, or there was an architect or architects behind the story that was peddling the story like you have read out, Mick. Uh, and of course, uh, people confronted me on that, uh, maybe during maybe the summer of 2019, and they had enough of time to come and speak to me and say, is this true? And of course, I was able to put, put it factually true to them that it, that it was not true. And how did I do that? I suppose I've done that in a number of ways. If you take the individual lies, one is I didn't have a love child uh, and I wasn't living with anybody with Nace. When me and my wife separated, I rented a house in Selbridge. I'm still renting in Selbridge. I never lived anywhere else. And that can be proven. First lie, wrong. Second thing, in relation to, and when I was meeting people, to prove to people it was a lie, I brought this information with me. So much so, in relation to leaving my wife destitute with no money, another lie. Would you believe it, Mick? I showed people my personal accounts to show that that was not the case and to show that I was paying the mortgage on the family home, which I did up until the family uh, home became debt-free in this year. So I have always done the right thing. There was no issue with that. And then in relation to uh, disowning my wife 
and disowning my daughter, which obviously I don't like to speak too much about. That is untrue because uh, obviously we have been through a process in the family court and obviously I can't speak about that. But all that can suffice to say is that it's acknowledged, you know, that the marriage broke down for natural reasons despite everyone's best efforts, beyond control, and that there was no nothing untoward. So that's absolutely untrue. And I suppose it was in the... So I've indicated myself to, to people, and people then began to uh, understand that that was the case, that this was a lie that was being orchestrated by an individual, or in some cases by individuals, and that was being peddled for uh, some personal vindictive reason for which I could never understand to get to the bottom of it. So, of course, then, that lie... Dissipates, dissipates uh, towards the end of 2019 and then we face into the election campaign and that was all good. So then of course it began to resurrect itself in about maybe the week in that same information on a post on Facebook and then was put up on Twitter in the week before the election. But we didn't pass much heat on it because we said we reported and got it taken down because we weren't picking it up on the door. So I suppose we looked at this in the ways, number one, is not getting any traction, but I also looked at it on the basis that people knew me. I'd served them for 11 years in Selbridge. They knew the type of individual I was. I had been widely acclaimed for being understanding and rational and reasonable and good with people and working hard with people and being honest. So uh, I, I assumed in that people weren't going to believe something that was put up on Facebook and being told uh, in Chinese whispers about me over the man that they knew the Tinner left years. And of course, it wasn't coming up on the door. Can okay. I ask you about that? As, as you said, that was initially on a Facebook post and the text I read out there was from a leaflet, Frank. Can yeah. You, what did you and, find out and about then what leaflets? I found out about the, what I found out about the leaflet after the event was that it was only when the election results was in and of course I'd lost the election. Uh, then I only found out then people started to contact me from the likes of Leak Slip, Selbridge, from Minute and from Clane to say that there was a huge amount of those leaflets that you've read the content off. And there was actually two leaflets. Yeah, there was a longer version. Yeah, there was yeah. a longer version, uh, which actually went into my whole approach and thought process on the Eighth Amendment, if you remember. So there was some scurrilous, filthy personal remarks made about my, uh, the, the, I suppose, the uh, attitude I adopted during the Eighth Amendment and from my own personal beliefs. Well, can, can, can I ask so you, Frank, yeah. sorry, just in terms of the, of the leaflets, are you saying that you have you you have evidence in terms of people who've come to you Absolutely. that these leaflets were handed indoors and you ma- you mentioned about four in, in those different locations Absolutely if you look at Leak Slip has a, has probably about 5 I know from doing leaflets about 5000 houses uh, Selbridge has over 7000 houses Minute is about four and a half to 5000 houses and then in the likes of Clayton, it was put into, uh, we call it supermarkets or stores at the back of the stores, okay, uh, and left uh, kind of on, on, on shelves there. So this was all done, orchestrated, very focused campaign uh, that was done with huge resources in the day before the election and the night before the election. Because how I knew and this... what proof have you uh, uh, that that was done? Well, uh, because people have contacted me from, that's what I'm saying, from Minute, people contacted me from Selbridge, people contacted me from Leaks say that when they woke up on voting morning, election morning, which is Saturday morning, this leaflet was in their door. Now, I'm not saying, if you add up the number of houses in Selbridge, Leaks, Levenuth, you're talking about 7 and 5 is 12, about 17,000 houses. I'm not saying that was 17,000 leaflets dropped, but from the cross-section of people that phoned me, there was a huge amount of leaflets dropped 
probably, maybe, maybe we can assume, maybe into every house, because I'm not going to ground and ask every house, but certainly from the actual feedback that I got from residents living in those three towns, uh, they actually uh, told me that they got them delivered in, and it was a cross-section of housing estates from different uh, sides of the different towns. Can I, can I so ask that was you, actually delivered on, on the night before When voting. you say you've been contacted, roughly speaking, how many people would have contacted you to, to, to let you know this? Oh, there, there were huge numbers. And do you know there even... Two dozen? Oh, more, more, far more. Like I would have got maybe, even even up to now, Mick, I would get messages of support uh, by text or on my messenger or WhatsApp. And they would tell me, like, that was a scurrilous leaflet that was put in our door the night before voting. So it, it, it's, it's, it's multiples and definitely in double figures that would have contacted me with it. But the unfortunate part was... It was too late when I got the yeah. information, and and, and what that like, what, and that didn't give me a chance to combat anything. That was the problem because see, it was done the night uh, before voting, and then obviously people had it in their letterbox, and they made a calculated decision the next day whether to support me or not based on whether they were going to believe it or not. I suppose the disappointing thing for me, there's two disappointments here, Mick. One is that people, when you look at the, and we can talk about it in a minute, when you look at how my vote was affected, it was affected mainly in my own back garden, which was Selbridge or Clachenstraffen. So I suppose the disappointment there is that people believed this orchestrated, calculated, strategic resource campaign that was fed off a lie that was invented against the man they knew for 10 years. That was disappointing. Of course, there was it. And the other disappointment is that why anyone would go to such a length to make up such a rotten, toxic lie to spread it about you to wreck your reputation. I suppose that's a disappointment. Right, and can I put it to you so, like what you're talking about there now, what started out as somebody somewhere um, was motivated against you on the basis of whatever, and uh, that was there. What you're describing now would seem to be uh, an organised campaign. And I think, you know, anybody who hears that would suggest that, that if that was the case, then one has to assume it was done by a political opponent of one sort or another. Now, that, Frank, is a major allegation to make in terms of suggesting that a political opponent or political party or entity or whatever would be responsible for this kind of thing. I'm just wondering, in terms of that, where does your suspicion end and your uh, facts or, or, or your proof begin? Do you know what I mean? Okay, well, I suppose my facts begin is that because people have came and told me uh, the story that they heard, which you have read out, which were absolutely accepting as a complete lie. Uh, they told me, which I'm not going to disclose in this interview, where that lie came from and who told them that lie. So I have that information. Right, and that's on and, a personal and, level. And, and You're and moving that's, from that's, that that's on personal the... So I, I know where that lie was orchestrated from, where it was created and where it was told. Sometimes told on a one-on-one, Mick, and sometimes told in a public enough forum, okay, to discredit me and to ruin my reputation. Because obviously uh, I was seen as someone that had a really good opportunity of re-holding holding my seat. So obviously it was a strategy on their behalf uh, individually or collectively to damage me, to create maximum impact, to try to uh, prevent me from getting re-elected, to create further hurt, to get me to lose my job. Okay, and certainly the lie that was told and spread played a role in me losing my job. There is absolutely no question. Uh, who then, uh, I suppose, my suspicion is, and I suppose I can be forgiven for thinking this, uh, somebody then 
obviously got wind of this, uh, got wind of this, uh, like they did on Facebook and Twitter, didn't really care whether it was factual or not, but maybe used it to their own advantage. Whether that was a political opponent, whether it was someone in business, whether it was someone personally, whether it was, uh, you know, a collective wall, I genuinely don't know. But the only thing I will say is that I was in public life for 10 years. And to do up a flyer and to deliver it in three towns in one night, you need resources and you need a lot of support and you need a lot of assistance. And I know that when I used to actually do a newsletter and I'd done them fairly frequently when I was a TD and delivered them in those areas and I'd give them to a leaflet company, the leaflet company would say, you give them to us on a Monday, we'll have the three towns done by the following Monday. So people can make up their own mind on this. But just before I finish in this point, Mick, it's hugely important for me to reinforce that I suppose it's encapsulated in all of that was a complete and utter lie. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it was on that basis then that when the election was over, I had a choice to make after losing. Do I fight back and stand up for my own rights and vindicate myself and show this was a lie? Or do I just let it go? And I was never going to let this go. Because okay. this is not about sympathy for me. This is about uh, telling a story about someone uh, where there was uh, a, a lie invented creates to create maximum damage and then hoping that people would get away with that. And that's never going to happen. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Okay, and what, what we do know, because you, 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 you've produced it and I've seen it, there definitely was leaflets distributed. There's Absolutely, no question. No question. But we also know something else. And because this arose in a high court action, and that was in relation to Twitter on the day of the election. And there was a tweet posted that was, to a large extent, lifted from that Facebook post that, as you say, is completely full of lies. We do know that on the day of the election, a tweet was posted at 2.18pm on the 8th of February, which was election day. The IP address for the Twitter account at the time in question was physically traced to City Hall in Dublin City Centre, which is, you're, you're, you're in Kildare North, that's neither here nor there. Twitter cooperated with, with you seeking to see who had sent it and they, they located the account to a man named Andrew Cronnelly of 19 Tamarisk Lawn in Kilnamana in Dublin 24. And I followed this court case myself, Frank, earlier this year and I got a number for uh, Mr Cronnelly and I contacted him and he said both in the court case and he admitted to me that he had sent that particular tweet. He also said to me that he didn't really know you and that as far as, and he also said he wasn't a member of any political party, but his general politics was, and there was a, what you might call a very loose movement at the time of this thing, vote left, transfer left, which was, I suppose you could broadly say, to a certain extent, was anybody but Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. I, th I think that's fair to say. Now he said broadly he would have been in favour of that, but he was not a member of any political party. Unusually, the, the Twitter account suggests that it had been, it appeared to be logged in and logged out of minutes apart from a wide array of IP addresses all over the country. Now, that is highly unusual. It mentioned that some of these IP addresses, for example, one was located, as I said, in Dublin city centre. Another was located in Limerick. 
and 26 la- minutes later, another was located in Donegal. Now, all of that is highly unusual if you're talking about one individual. There might even be a suggestion it would have to be somebody, if it was one individual, tearing around the country. Now, I asked Mr. Cranley about that, and he told me he had been, I think, he's, I think he said he'd never been in Donegal, or he might have been 10 years ago, he'd been in Limerick a number of years ago. He certainly wasn't there. Uh, this year or last year or the days preceding the election. And he also said he knew nothing about the kind of technology. There is technology out there, as we know, where you can disguise an IP address um, and use it to pretend you're somewhere else. And he said he knew nothing about that. Now, all of that is absolutely factual and he admits his role in it. It is also very odd, I'd have to suggest, in terms of the whole business of IP addresses around the country. And... All of this was only uncovered because, as you said, you felt so aggrieved, understandably so, that you brought a high court action against Twitter and Facebook to uncover whom would have been behind the online campaign. Absolutely. And you see, you're after just quoting their uh, factual information. And and all of that leads to uh, somebody with resources or with knowledge and expertise in this field, because not any ordinary, as we call it, Joe Soap or Mrs. Soap would be able to do that information. So you have to know what you're about, but also it has to be orchestrated and planned and strategic. So, you know, it's it's fairly evident that there was a fairly vicious campaign against me uh, to take me out. And probably that was motivated because I was seen as being a guy that went about his business looked after his constituents very well, worked hard, was very focused and was in prime position to actually take uh, a seat in the 2020 general election. But let me just focus in on the impact all this had with you, Mick, and then we can go into the the high court case, is is that when you look at my first preference votes in 2016 and 2020, they're very similar, probably maybe 100 votes between them. Okay, Uh, and I still lost. And but if you look at where this had the most dramatic effect, uh, and I got a statistic analysis done on this uh, by a very close friend of mine uh, who actually looked at the votes in all of the different areas. So if you look at Selbridge, for example, and our and Straffan, and they'd be my immediate area. Selbridge, obviously, is where my base and home is, uh, and is, our Clough and Straffan is about three kilometres from Selbridge. So if you look at that area in its totality, on the day of election, my personal voice in that immediate area, which had been focused in this campaign of lies against me, dropped by 20%. 20% on 2016. And you were, you were a sitting TD. And I was a sitting TD. So it dropped. now everyone was, was predicting, and it's only predicting, and we're only just having the conversation about that, and there's no science, that I would have been expected because I was a first-time TD in 16, and because people had known me and knew the work I had done and, and the impact I had in the area, and Selbridge didn't have a TD for nearly 35 years before that, and I was very visible because I had a full, fully operational staffed office on the main streets that turned out to be more a community uh, facility as well as uh, uh, an electus uh, uh, service being provided for the people that supported me. So there was a huge focus on that. So people would have been expected my first preference vote to nearly definitely stay stable with 16 
And in most cases, you'd be forgiven for thinking it would increase by maybe 10 or 15%, but it actually dropped 20%. Now you say, what's the significance of that? I'll tell you what the significance of that is. You go outside of Selbridge, you go over to uh, Minute and Leakslip, which is the next large towns immediately affected. My first preference vote stayed static. Static, didn't drop, but didn't increase. You go to Kilcock, go to Rack Coffee, go to Newtown, go to Clane, go to Nace, go to Eadstown, go to Kill, go to Salins. My first preference vote all increased dramatically. The reason it increased dramatically is because it was reflecting my work ethic. Okay, it wasn't so much about the party, it was more about the individual. So a combination of both. So the further you away from Selbridge, my first preference vote increased, increased, increased. And that was because they weren't made aware or they weren't being attacked or they weren't being fed this lie so it didn't affect their vote. So it's very evident that the dramatic lie that was told, it had the maximum impact on my home base, and then the further you went away from that, obviously it had less and no impact. Okay, and that's why my first preference vote, although my personal first preference vote, personal vote dropped by twenty percent in Selbridge. The reason it stayed similar to twenty sixteen overall is because all of the other areas compensated for it by increasing my first preference vote. Okay, and so that's that's the dramatic effect the lie had right. on the focus campaign, and just. Pointing out a few things about the constituency. First of all, as you say, Frank, you were a sitting TD. So was your party colleague, um, James Lawless. So was Catherine Murphy, co-leader of the Social Democrats, and Bernard Durkin, very long-serving Fianna Gael TD. All, I'd arguably, a high-profile. Well, maybe not Mr Lawless, but the other two would certainly be far more high-profile than yourself. Absolutely. And I, I don't know how that would reflect on the constituency. You were displaced on the day, in terms of your seat, by Rita Cronin from Sinn Féin. Now, the first thing I'd have to say about that is Miss Cronin is a person of the highest integrity. There is absolutely no suggestion whatsoever that anybody associated with her or herself had anything to do with anything of this nature. In addition to that, Frank, I'd have to point out, notwithstanding the specifics in the constituency, that election day is known for one thing above absolutely everything, and that is the surge to Sinn Féin. And not only that, it was a surge, not in Miss Cronin's case, because she was a local councillor and very well known and well regarded, but in, in regards to, for example, some of the other Sinn Féin TDs who were elected, I would suggest that they were not exactly that well known and that they owed their election to the fact that the surge was specifically to the party as opposed to individuals. There's no question people wanted a change, that Sinn Féin were viewed as the vehicle for that change. And in that context, the fact that Rhea Cronin would be elected, I'd suggest to you it would have been unusual in such a way if she wouldn't have been elected. So that would give rise to the question, if the others were going to get in and there was a question of you or Miss Cronin for that seat, that would give rise to the question... Did it make any difference? Yes, it did. And and I would acknowledge, by the way, the four sitting TDs, and I've congratulated them after my election defeat and wished them well. And, and as you say, they're all people of the highest regard. So there's no question of anything in, in that regard at all. It, 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 of course, it, there was two elements to losing anyone losing the election. Uh, one was the national surge for Sinn Féin, because people 
were fed and sick and tired of the established parties. And there was a protest vote against Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. So, you know, they, they were being given a mandate to say, look, we would like somebody new for a change. And I suppose it was a bit like the Fianna Fáil uh, swing, I suppose, in 07, Fine Gael in 2011. You had the spring tide, you know, before that uh, many years ago. So uh, parties gets that bounce. So this was Sinn Féin's time and they'd done it well and they got it and best to look to them on it. So there was two elements. That was one element, was the national trend. But uh, you see, if you look at my vote, my vote is a slightly bit different than that. Because if there was a national trend, and there was, by the way, there's no issue, uh, I should have been losing more heavily in the other areas in my constituency. And of course I wasn't. My personal vote all increased dramatically in those areas, which compensated for the for the loss in Selbridge. The reason that my vote, personal vote, dropped dramatically in Selbridge was because of the orchestrated, focused, personal campaign of lying in me. But so much so, Mick, just to, to give that further, I suppose, uh, uh, support in, in my own view, it, it, it's not even so much what I'm saying, but people have been very honest with me since the election. I remember like when, the, of course, a couple of Sundays after losing the election, uh, when you don't know where you are nearly or what's happening, uh, when I'd be coming out of mass, people actually waited for me uh, and uh, to explain to me. And actually, even two weeks ago when I was doing my shopping, my grocery shopping in Selbridge, a lady came up to me. And, she, and this would be the trend for what had been fed back to me. They first introduce themselves if I don't know them and they apologise. And they say, look, we're sorry that you're not representing Selbridge. This is factually correct. We're sorry because you've done the town good and you're missed badly now. And of course, you'd engage with us and you'd have a brief discussion. And then they'd actually go on to be honest with you and say the reason that they didn't support me was they said, look, we obviously believe the lie. Uh, we be we got the information in our door. We seen the information on social media. We were told the information by somebody, and foolishly we believed that information. And we felt that just on the day we couldn't support someone, uh, being from a family background themselves, they would have done this to their family. And we now regret that because we know it was a lie based on the action you took in the high court. You don't go to the high court and take on these people unless you believe that you're lied about. And you don't obviously win your cases to win and win the judgments you win. So people have been very open and honest with me. So that's the litmus test on this. The litmus test on this is, apart from the orchestrated campaign, apart from seeing my personal vote dropped, people have actually come up openly and honestly to me. Uh, you know, and they were embarrassed about it, but they'd done it. Maybe it was to ease their own conscience or maybe it was to, at the same time, to give me an encouragement, uh, you know, to maybe say, look, we'll be, we, we won't do this the next time. I, I, they have their own reasons for doing it. I'm not sure it makes me feel any better, but the only thing it does help me with is that to understand that the re confirms to me that this was one of the main reasons uh, outside the national movement that my personal vote dropped. Okay, and it, I should also point out that um, Mr. Cranley, who sent out that tweet whom I spoke to, <coughs> told me he was not a member of any political party. And I would also add that I made some inquiries myself in his lo locale and uh, nowhere did it come up that he was a member of a particular party or would have been acting for a particular party. That is, as it may so... In terms of, uh, you may you you have suspicions, and I, I suspect Frank more than suspicions of whom was behind the personal vilification. But whether any political entity or uh, anybody on behalf of anyone politically uh, went out 
and use this and try to, for example, your suspicion about leaflet drop, there is no concrete evidence that that can be attributed to any specific party or entity. Absolutely not. Only that, I suppose, the information stands by itself. Right. What was it? And, and the information is there that this, uh, this lie was personally motivated against me. Uh, and I'm aware of the source. Uh, and then I suppose it, it grew legs and energy from there. And then people will make up their own minds as to how it transformed and the way it did. Uh, but it did. And the information and the proof is there from social media, Facebook, Twitter, from leaflet drops, etc. how all this was done. And, you know, you don't do that from your own PC or your own printer. There has to be some gathering of a group or there has to be certainly some teamwork involved to do it. And who was ultimately responsible for doing it, I don't know. I don't think it would make me feel any better if I did know. Uh, but uh, what this conversation about today is dealing with the facts. And, and the facts are, it was all born out of a lie. So you, you lose your seat, and we've often heard from sitting TDs who lose their seat. It is traumatic on, on so many different levels. I'm sure you feel it personally in terms of a certain rejection from the public in, in, in one form as people would. Then at some point... It dawns on you, or perhaps straight away you attribute it to it, that this lie that was put about had contributed to you. How did that impact on your feelings about the defeat at that well, stage? I, I suppose it, 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 uh, there was, I suppose there was a bit of anger and there was a disappointment and there was bewilderment. You know, as I said earlier in the interview, how somebody would go to such a level to make up and create such a lie. You know, if you saw it on a soap opera or in a movie, you'd think, my God, who was the actual scriptwriter for this? So it was bewildering, being honest with you, Mick. And I was wondering why uh, that was the case. And of course, as time went on, then I began to get more information as to where that came from and who was the source of that and the sources of that and where, where all that originated from. So then, of course, pieces of the jigsaw began to come together. And I suppose it, it began to make a level of sense, but not acceptable, of course. So when when... Uh, so then at that point, remember too when I lost the election in February 2020, within a month of that, on the 14th of March 2020, went into a national lockdown. Uh, uh, so you're isolated from your family and your friends. You're in a very lonely place. You've just lost your job. And remember as well, uh, the pandemic payment was available, but not available to XTDs that lost their seats or to me. So I had no source of work. I was out of work and had no source of income. Uh, and despite the message that's out there in some aspects of the media that once you're a TD, you're flourished with money for the rest of your life. Of course, that's not true or that's not correct. And, and nor it should be. You shouldn't get paid for the work you do. So I was facing into a long number of months with no income, uh, having to meet my obligations of mortgage, you know, car loan, rent and live and at the same time being completely isolated. So, and having gone through what I'd gone through in the year, uh, you know, which we've already discussed, and on top of that, then losing my job, it was a difficult space, let me tell you. So, and then... And you also, you all, but you felt strongly enough 
about this, notwithstanding the, the major costs involved for anybody in going to court, that you decided you wanted, you brought a high court action against Twitter and Facebook on the basis of spreading this lie, as you said. Uh, absolutely. And and those uh, Osborne solicitors in NACE, uh, those, uh, they, we, we, we made contact with them and they made contact back to me and they felt actually themselves, and there was a solicitor in the works in there, Eamon Deneef, and he just couldn't believe like what had happened to me and the way I'd been treated. And basically he he listened to my story and, you know, his view was the same as mine, that we should definitely go after, uh, we say Facebook and Twitter to identify the people that peddled and promoted and spread the lie about me. And at this stage, I suppose, like I said earlier, I had the choice that I could lie on the couch all day and do nothing because we're in national lockdown and do my two kilometre walk or whether I was going to come out fighting. And I just felt strongly enough about this. Okay, losing the election is one thing. There's no security in public life, uh, but you work hard to regain your seat and the litmus test in ultimately is the people will decide whether you deserve to be re-elected or not. And I suppose there was a mixed view on that on me because people decided not to support me, not because of my work ethic or what I hadn't, or not because of lack of delivery. It was because they were confused with the personal lie that was told about me. And at this time, they felt they were going to loan their vote to somebody else. So then I, I said, said, I'm going to fight back here. So then what I'd done was engaging with my sister who brought in a good senior counsel and a good barrister. We decided that we were going to pursue Facebook and Twitter through the high court. And of course, you only spend that enormous amount of money and you only pursue that on the basis that you believe and you know that you've been lied about. And I was certainly lied about. So I was going to go out and and pursue this to try and expose the people that set up the false profiles and that spread the lie and peddled the lie and decided to uh, continue to share and circulate a complete mistruth about me. And, and, and and, And that's ongoing. Tell me, Frank, do you see any particular measures that could be taken to ensure that what you were subjected to could be avoided, certainly in terms of national elections in the future? Yeah, I, I think what would be hugely important, Mick, is that, that based social media platforms are held to account that whoever sets up a profile on their platform, uh, there must be strong and strict uh, regulation and guidelines around that to ensure that if they try to delete the profile, if they remove us or whatever, that they're 100% traceable. Because remember, at the moment, if one wants to, they can set up a false profile tonight. They can go out and discredit whoever they want to discredit. If they're very clever around IT, they can delete their profile and everything goes with us and they can never be found. And I believe that's wrong. That's fundamentally wrong because what you're doing is you're playing with someone's life. You're destroying uh, somebody's character, someone's reputation. And the consequence of that, as we've just seen, is absolutely, you know, uh, substantial, to say the least. So I know know that at the moment in the current all, uh, that this is a focus point because a lot of sitting TDs uh, that was elected, re-elected, and some that weren't re-elected, suffered badly uh, in, a cer- in a similar way that I suffered, maybe not as bad, maybe some of them suffered more, I don't know. Uh, and, and obviously it's becoming a huge issue of a talking point to making these platforms more accountable so that people, uh, if they do do this, that they're held to account and that that information is, re- is retrievable 
And it also should be done very uh, quickly, Mick, and it shouldn't be done at enormous cost to the victim. Because remember, I was discredited. I was told to lie about. Uh, I was the one then that had to spend huge money to go to redeem my reputation. And that's wrong, fundamentally wrong. Absolutely. And you see, those these large uh, organisations... You know, let's be fair, Twitter was very good and they cooperated very quickly with me. And, you know, thankfully, uh, Judge Leona Rillins gave an order against Facebook and Twitter in my favour to get the information because obviously it could be well seen that I'm here in the high court. Why? Because I was treated badly and I was told lies about and we want to get to the bottom of that. So justice prevailed, thankfully. But Facebook, I think, had us in the high court maybe six or seven times, if I remember correctly. Like, not a huge issue to them, financially, I'm sure, only a drop in the ocean. But for me, significant money. And this is at a time when I had no work, out of a job, you know, and trying to use the calculator to make ends meet. So look, it's all very much, I suppose, skewered against the victim in this situation. And I don't want to present it that as victim-led, but this, my story is not an invented story. It's reality. And this is what happened. Finally, Frank, what about you in politics? Are you finished with it or could you see yourself going back into it? Uh, yeah, look, I'm not, I never finished in politics. Um, I, I, I loved uh, politics. I still like it. I still have a keen interest. Would you believe it? After losing the election, you go through a difficult time where it's nearly hard even to watch the news or watch the uh, political programs that's on the TV because you've been so involved in this. It's even uh, hard even to watch some of the dull uh, debates uh, because you're so emotionally involved. So uh, I would never say no to, um, to public life or me re-entering it. I suppose that's a decision that I will make with people close to me and my uh, campaign team when the time comes, and I suppose with the organisation uh, as well, uh, I suppose to see number one when the time comes if they want you still, and number two then if you still want to uh, that. Uh, but I would never close the door on public life, uh, and it'd be the wrong thing to do because I felt, and I still do believe that I should be representing Kildare North, and I could have had a fair crack at the whip of representing Kildare North only for the orchestrators, uh, I suppose, campaign against me. But just maybe further to say, Mick, and something we didn't touch on, is that even coming out of the back of losing the election uh, and all of that orchestrated campaign against me, you know, that was further added to, uh, by the hate campaign that started against me. Remember, you know, there was a hate campaign started against me after losing the election where actually I began to get anonymous letters hand-delivered to my home uh, and posted Even though you'd lost the election? Even though I'd lost the election. So that was something that was very difficult to accept and to deal with uh, in the months after losing the election. Uh, So, you know, just to put it into perspective, you know, we've spoke about the four major significant things that happened bad in my life in a year. And then when you're coming out at the other end of that and you're starting to fight back, and starting to stand up for yourself and get justice and prove that what was said about you was a lie to protect your reputation and to obviously put yourself into a positive space where you had been and defend your good name, uh, then start an anonymous letter uh, with a hate campaign. Uh, not alone was this focused to me, but it was also focused to people very close to me. Uh, and that's something that's been very difficult to deal with, you know, as well. Uh, and obviously, it took some time to try to understand. Uh, and, you know, it was fairly intensive. 
and extremely nasty. So, you know, it has been a, a challenging time all around. Not so much to lose an election is one thing, but then to deal with the aftermath of this, not alone coming to me, but coming to those uh, that would be within my family and close to me was particularly difficult as well. So it's been a difficult time. I can well imagine. Frank O'Rourke, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you, Mick. That's it for today, folks. What is, I suppose, a very modern and a somewhat worrying account of politics as it is practised in these times. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. You can get us on the usual platforms. And don't forget to subscribe to the Irish Examiner for solid and enlightening journalism. We'll see you soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.